Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we are talking about the impacts of global warming, climate change on the Arctic. My guest today is George Savoki, a biologist of Cooper Island. Hello, George. Morning, Rob. How are you? Good. Um, I'm up here in Cambridge, and it's very cold these days. Uh, it's about 10 degrees this morning. And are you out in Washington State? Or? Uh, yeah, no, I'm in, I'm in Seattle, and it's just about the same temperature as it would be when I wake up on Cooper Island in the summer. It's around 35 degrees or so. That's nice. I'm glad they maintain your habitat consistent yes. for you. Uh, let me introduce you to our listeners. Uh, George DeVoke has a Ph.D. from the University of Alaska, Fairbanks. George was featured in the New Yorker magazine for his studies of seabirds in Arctic Alaska. And Dr. DeVoke has been studying the birds there since 1970. And he's now supported by the Friends of Cooper's Island. And that's www.cooperisland.org. I had the good fortune to visit George on Cooper Island some summers ago, and George and the Friends of Cooper Island are on the Ocean River Institute partner uh, list, and you can learn more about George's research at his website and also at our website, www.oceanriver.org. This month, and uh, George kind of came to my attention once again because this month he is, or there's a play about climate change in the Arctic called Greenland that's opened at London's National Theater. And it features a character based on George DeVoke's researching a far-flung Arctic island. And the play will run until April. But uh, we'll talk about the play at the end of the program. Uh, George, let's get started with uh, your first encounters of Cooper Island and how did this all come about? Sure, Rob. Oh, just one thing I wanted to correct is that the, yes. uh, is that the article about me was actually in the New Yorker magazine. Or, or, I'm sorry, it was, it, was, it was in the New York Times magazine, the Sunday New York Times magazine, and there is a link to that article from my CooperIsland.org website. But, um, it's a fabulous that, article. I recommend it to everybody. It's a, a 13,000-word article, which I can't have 13,000 words uh, today to go into, but... I basically was up in the Arctic looking um, at uh, areas that hadn't been censused for seabirds before, and I was up there in the early 1970s, um, and there was concern because Prudhoe Bay was about to be developed uh, into a functioning oil field, 
And um, I visited um, almost all the barrier islands that are found on the north coast of Alaska, and one of them was Cooper Island, and was very surprised to find a cavity-nesting seabird that uh, was breeding in boxes. Uh, there are no natural rock cavities on that coast. It's all sand and gravel bars. And here was a bird that is, is rather common off the coast of Maine, breeding, breeding in rock cavities there, breeding in these boxes on Cooper Island. And I was very taken with that. I built some more boxes for the birds and went back from now um, annually from 1975 every summer up until the present. So tell us about the bird. Well, black, black guillemots, as it turns out, and these are things we found out over the period of the study, is a, it is a diving seabird, uh, but it is rather unique in that it dives under the ice to find its prey. And it, it's one of the few species in the Arctic that's actually found under uh, the ice and next to the ice and wants to be there. Um, the Antarctic has a number of species that are associated with ice. Um, the Arctic only has three or four, and the black guillemot is one of them. And I studied them uh, in terms of their breeding biology. They come to the island in early June. They lay eggs that hatch around 28 days after being laid. And then the chicks are in the nest for 35 to 40 days. And um, for oh, 15 to 25 years, I studied them and found them to be uh, doing very well. I built a colony up to 200 pairs by building more and more nest boxes. And there was, there was lots of ice close by, and there was lots of Arctic cod, which is a fish that lives right under the ice. And everything seemed fine. I was banding birds annually and following them. I had one bird I followed for 29 years. And it was only in the late 1990s, as things started to warm up more, things had been warming slowly in the Arctic, uh, but things started to warm up more, um, that, they're, that, they're, um, that the ice started melting adjacent to the Arctic and pulling their food away. And I had noticed that things were getting warmer because birds were laying their eggs earlier and earlier, but just by around one or two uh, days per decade, so that, the, so that the date of laying is now certainly earlier than it was in the 1970s. And that, wasn't, uh, that was an interesting finding. It showed that warming was taking place, but it wasn't the sort of thing that I saw when the uh, ice started to pull away and chicks started to starve in the nests and parents had a great deal of trouble trying to find um, food. So, so that, was a, that was the first really major climate change signal, was the fact that the pack ice was melting, taking the food away from the black guillemots, and meaning they could no longer breed as successfully as they did in the past. That and was so you, rather benign almost compared to what happened next, which was that the horned puffin, which is a subarctic seabird that is bigger than the black guillemot, moved up to northern Alaska, moved into Cooper Island, and started prospecting nest sites and disrupting nesting by... Uh, pushing eggs out of nest sites and killing chicks, and, and doing that on a rather large scale so that they would really um, uh, cause the colony breeding success to be much lower. And as bad as that seemed, it wasn't as bad as what's happened in the past five, six years, where now with the ice pulling off the continental shelf, polar bears are abandoning the ice, swimming into shore. Um, they don't want to stay with the ice when it's off the shelf because there aren't any seals out there uh, over, the, over the Arctic Basin. So they come swimming into shore, sometimes uh, swimming great distances. They're clearly tired and hungry when they get there. They're looking for anything they can eat. They uh, find the guillemot chicks in the nest sites, and they, and they, and they eat the guillemot chicks in the nest sites. So um, this, this has all happened in a rather rapid period of time, essentially from 1995 up until the present, uh, so that the colony now really, unless we take major uh, action to try to save it, won't exist in the future. Right. So, so back up a bit and tell us about what it's, you know, what, what's it like doing your research and how do you live on this island 
And then, you know, what were some of your personal experiences of the change in climate of global warming? Well, that's, that's what's been interesting is that unlike places where you can maybe uh, field sites where you can drive to them from your, from your home, I've had to live out there every summer for the past uh, now 37 years. So any sort of changes that have gone on, I've had to experience them too. And um, one of them was that when I first got up to Alaska, it was much easier to get out there because there were lots of bush plains and things like that. And, and things weren't um, big. Big oil hadn't come to the slope, so, so all of the pilots hadn't gone down to Prudhoe Bay to, uh, to get jobs down there. So, so getting out to the island was easier. It was also easier to get out there because I could go up by a snow machine in early June if I had to because the ice was thick enough and there was not much melt on it. So it was, it was rather easy to get out to the island. Um, as things started to warm up and puddles started to form on the shore fast ice in June, and also all of the uh, people who could fly me out there seemed to leave Barrow, I had more and more trouble getting out to the island with time. Um, and now one would never consider uh, going out over the ice by snow machine in June uh, because, because people have tried similar things and have, and have, and have broken through. So... Um, I went once on the island for, for, for 28 years, I lived in a small tent. Uh, sometimes I had a large cook tent next to it, but it was always um, a tenting operation until 2002 when the ice pulled off shore uh, off the shelf in a major way and dumped a large number of polar bears on the northern Alaska coast. And around 25 to 30 of them walked down Cooper Island over a two-day period, um, you know, uh, scaring me and my field assistants to death and also uh, eating, eating, eating all the chicks. So, so now I have to carry a shotgun around constantly. I have to be aware of polar bears constantly because uh, past a certain date uh, in the summer, polar bears now show up and, um, um, and, are, and are present on the island. And as a result, I took a cabin out there, an 8x12 cabin, which you saw when you visited me a few years yes. ago. And it is, people always say, is that a bear-proof cabin? And no, a polar bear could certainly break in if it wanted to, but I would at least hear it breaking in if it was breaking in. When I saw in 2002 one of the bears walk up to my unoccupied tent, I had backed off from the tent, the bear walked up to it, and it ripped a hole in the top and shoved its head in. I realized if I had been sleeping, I wouldn't have heard a thing. And the first thing I would have been aware of is a polar bear head right over my uh, sleeping bag. So... So that, that has been a major, major change. It isn't, uh, I mean, there have been lots of other changes. I don't have any fresh water on the island anymore because of the melting of the permafrost on the island and various things like that. But, but the present... Well, George, what did you have for water initially? Well, initially, what we would use, and, and what we still use for June, is we have snow drifts on the island. And we can, um, in June, we can still melt snow for water using that. But then in uh, July and August, in the past, we would use multi-year ice. And multi-year ice is ice that's been frozen for more than one winter. And when that happens, the salt gets pushed out of it, or, or much of the salt gets pushed out of it, so that if you find these pieces of multi-year ice, and they're clear, uh, clearly, uh, and they're obvious because they are so crystal clear, it looks like ice, uh, sculpture ice, um, you can find them, put them in a garbage bag or in a container, and then drink that. And that's what we drank uh, in July and August for, oh, at least 20 years or so. And then, because of the ice uh, changing as it has, the pack ice, there is uh, much less multi-year ice than there used to be. None of it washes up on Cooper Island. And the first year this happened, it was really a problem because we realized, wait a minute, we don't have any water supply out here. What we did have in the past also were freshwater ponds that were 
uh, held there by permafrost that was underlying them as the permanently frozen ground that would hold the melted snow um, throughout much of the summer. Now that the permafrost is melting, there's nothing to actually keep those ponds intact. So they are just remnants of what they were um, and, and really not drinkable water. So, so that has been um, a major change for us in terms of one of our, one of our major um, uh, things that we need on the island, obviously, to stay alive, which is a fresh water supply. Yes, when I visited Cooper's Island, or Cooper Island, it was not a tropical paradise island by any means. It was um, a barrier beach that was, you know, we, we came in on the, the backside, you know, away from the open Beaufort Sea or something, and uh, uh, like a, a bay, I guess, but um, we just walked up the slope a bit and, to a top, and on top of the gravel bar at the middle of the island, you'd put your cabin and stuff. Um, it's great visibility, but it's... I did find some vegetation, but it was smaller than a dime, you know, down in the rocks and stuff. Yes, and that's, I mean, and that is one of the things. When I first thought about going up to an Arctic island, when I would think about that, you know, uh, when I was getting ready to go up to Alaska, I always picture these kind of rocky uh, islands like you would get off Maine and things like this. And as you say, this is a low sand and gravel bar. It's around um, eight feet high at its highest point. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and what vegetation there is um, um, is is very small and and uh, and also has to deal with the fact that that there is no fresh water on the island so uh, so uh, grasses that are salt tolerant and things like that uh, dominate and and actually when you talked about coming up on the back of the island that was another important thing that's happened recently ice used to be a great barrier for wind and wave formation or well for wave formation it would it would it would stop yeah. uh, major swells from forming now with the ice well offshore we have these large swells coming in so we always have to boat on the back of the island but when we're out in the passes we get these large sea swells which which we never had in the past uh between us and the and the 30 miles back into barrow so so that has been a major change the people now have to have bigger boats i used to go out there in a very small zodiac with a 9.9 engine on the back which now would be suicidal if i would even think about that right i went out uh lewis um bauer took me out in a you know, he had a boat on a trailer because of the nature of, you know, over there in Barrow was that you'd back your boat into the water and then motor over places. And so it must be difficult to have larger boats um, getting out there. Yeah, and, when we is, and, they, cross, uh, and the Coast Guard is, going, is thinking about uh, going up there for a number of reasons. And one of the things they're, they're wanting to do is put up something where, where, where the boats of the size they would want to use would be able to pull into some sort of, um, area and actually tie up. I mean, and as you say, there is no place for a boat to really tie up there now. You have to either anchor offshore and come in by a dinghy, uh, right. or come in and put your boat on a uh, on a, a trailer on the beach or something. Yeah, and actually, well, and obviously, one of the problems is George, that we have to interrupt, and we'll be right back after this break with George Devoki. Sure. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with George DeVoki. I consider him the birdman of Cooper Island, uh, and I have the good fortune of being able to visit George uh, up on Cooper Island, which is about 25 miles east of Barrow, Alaska. And uh, we took a small boat um, through the, the water, and the water at that time was full of chunks of ice. And George was saying that that's backed off away from the beaches, and it exposes this gravel bar beach to erosion factors from the... Um, the, the wave impacts that are no longer being quieted by, by ice floating in the water. Uh, and when I came into uh, the cove of the entrance, or the, when I came up to Cooper's Island, we had a small boat that we put the bow of the boat on the, on the shore and then hopped over the bow onto the beach kind of thing. And, um, but I was surprised to see these loons as we approached. They looked like they were loons on steroids, and they actually... There's another species of loon than the common loon that I'm used to seeing in New England, uh, the uh, yellow-billed loon. Um, and are you seeing wildlife changing over with the climate changing happening up there, George? Um, yes. I mean, they're actually, I mean, certainly I mean, the species I've keyed in on, which is the black guillemot, I've, I've, I've been able to track that that species responds right. to climate change. Just but, anecdotal kind of observations. Of but in terms of, I mean, there's been, a, well, actually we went out there originally because Arctic terns bred on the island, uh, and there was uh, 75 pairs of Arctic terns, which we wanted to study. That was one of the main reasons we went out there. Because of climate change, there's now less than 10 pairs breeding on the island. Um, brant, black brant, a sea goose that never bred on the island for the first uh, 15 years of the study started breeding there in 1990, and now has around uh, 75 pairs that produce lots of young and yellow-billed loons. That 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 species that you mentioned, 
I see them uh, fly by, and it's actually, it turns I didn't know that I was right offshore from one of the prime breeding habitats for yellow-billed in northern Alaska, but it is a species that uh, people are very concerned with now because it is uh, declining throughout its range, and um, they are, uh, 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 since they breed in very scattered lakes uh, throughout the tundra, it is, it, is, it is hard to track, and it's hard to track numbers. But um, they are uh, certainly considering listing it as an endangered species uh, because, because numbers have dropped. And, and as you say, in the area where you pulled up, which we call Boat Bay, the, the, the little uh, cove right behind Cooper Island, we can get oh, six to seven yellow-billed loons uh, sitting there uh, feeding, um, and, uh, which may be a sizable pop part of the local population. And it wasn't until I went to a conference and heard about what was going on throughout the range that I realized, gee, things are really bad for the species uh, because, because I, I, I tend to see them there. Right. They look happy there. Yeah. No, they are happy there, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised the brant geese can find enough vegetation to munch on. Well, you know, that is a very interesting story because, uh, again, as you said uh, earlier, there's almost no vegetation on the island. And when they first bred there, one pair did it. And I thought, okay, well, this is good. Uh, let's see how you can do. And, and, and they raised their young in 1990. And then because Brant young stay with their parents throughout the winter, they came back um, and started breeding there uh, uh, the following year. So there was both the young and the parents from the previous year. And then that just kind of built and built so that now I'm sure they're probably at the carrying capacity uh, of the island with 75 pairs and also having many young that are going out. And I will go to the gravel areas uh, that, you know, that, 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 that make up the bulk of the island and see Brant families walking along with young um, with their heads down, grazing. Uh, and I will get down on the ground, and I can see very tiny strands of vegetation, of grass oh that are com- coming up at places where I didn't think there was vegetation. So that, that's kind of what's keeping them going, is, uh, is the fact that there, there are things coming up through the gravel where, where Brant can see the vegetation, whereas humans don't even see it unless they get right down there to see it. So, um, so yeah, it, it, was a, it was a big surprise that the island could support that population. Will there be more vegetation with the um, thawing of the permafrost? Do you get more cloudberry and stuff? Uh, yes, actually, that's been a really or... interesting thing. Now, of course, I'm kicking myself for not tracking the, uh, the, the vegetation more, but, of course, I had no uh, reason to think right. it was going to change drastically. But poppies, uh, Arctic poppies, which are very uh, – it, it, it is a nice yellow poppy. Um, it's very colorful in what you know is a bleak landscape. And we used to have a few of those every year that would come out in August uh, at a few spots on the island. And in the past five years, they have started to grow all over the island and sometimes in very large patches and also get to be much larger than they used to be. And what I think is happening is as, as the permafrost is melting, um, when, when a plant is trying to put its roots down in frozen soil, it obviously has problems. That isn't a problem for plants anymore on Cooper Island. And I think that the poppies are now able to go to areas that in the past had permafrost slightly below the surface and be able to thrive because they can now grow um, in, in, in a habitat that is not frozen. So, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been striking. And, of course, people on the tundra are seeing the same sort of things uh, in a big way. Uh, the tundra that is just south of Barrow is going to get shrubbier over the next uh, 20 to 30 years, and everyone knows that. And it's going to mean lots of changes for the shorebirds and the waterfowl um, that, that, are, uh, that are breeding there, as, as well as the caribou that, that are out there grazing. So you were talking earlier about the um, animals that are associated 
with um, the ice flows, and you said that they're really just three animals like the black guillemot. And, and what is it in their natural histories that make them so dependent on ice? Well, I mean, black, black guillemots, as it turned out, and this is the subspecies of black guillemot that uh, is up in northern Alaska. It was its own species until 1940 or so. Um, this subspecies was actually trapped north of the Bering Land Bridge during the last glacial maximum 20,000, 25,000 years ago. And there was one area of the Arctic uh, Ocean that was not glaciated, and based on looking at, uh, uh, at, the, uh, at the DNA of these guillemots, one can tell that there was a major bottleneck, uh, meaning that there were very few females that survived around 20,000 years ago, and that it was up in this area that that, that occurred. So, so what happened 20,000 years ago is that they had only the ice to feed next to because, because, it was, because basically much of North America was, was, was covered by glaciers and, um, and, and certainly much of the Arctic Ocean was, was covered with sea ice and glaciers. So they had to live in very tiny cracks in the ice if they were going to survive, and some birds did. So any bird that really bought into the ice environment 20,000 years ago passed its genes on to the birds that are now on Cooper. Uh, island, and they are looking for the same sort of ice that their ancestors had 20,000 years ago and not finding it. And being adapted to feeding under the ice, uh, they, um, they, they, they are having a tough time with, with an ice-free ocean. I should also mention that they don't migrate at all. Uh, that was one of the things about being trapped up there, is that they move offshore uh, to areas just off Barrow, uh, some of them, and winter out there all winter long. So, so the suns blow the horizon for uh, three months of the year. Uh, the, the temperatures are, you know, minus 10 to minus 40 or so, and they are feeding in little tiny cracks in the ice that start freezing as soon as they form, but do have lots of cod under them. Uh, so they find these cracks, they feed there, then they get up in the air and try to find the next open crack close by so they can go feed there. Oh, my gosh. And, and the food fish... Are pretty much only under the ice, right? Yeah, Arctic cod is a species that is adapted to living right under the ice, and there is under the ice. There is a um, oh uh, zooplankton. Uh, there's a shrimp uh, and small in, invertebrate populations uh, of uh, that are found right under the ice, uh, clinging to the bottom of the ice, and in the summer they are feeding on the algae and the phytoplankton that come out of the ice. So, so it's almost like an inverted uh, coral reef. Uh, people who've been diving, who've gone under there, have said that's what it looks like. And you see these, these cod that are, that are uh, feeding on these little invertebrates and hiding in spaces uh, uh, in the ice uh, when the diver approaches, which is what they almost certainly do when a seal or a guillemot approaches. But guillemots are able to just go under the ice, find, uh, get these cod. And the cod, because they're living in 28-degree Fahrenheit water, have to be very high fat because they have to be, they have to be mobile uh, and, and active uh, in a very, very cold environment. So, so it is a great food source for them in the winter, and it's, it's also the best food source to feed their young in the summer because they have a rapidly growing chick that needs all the food it can get. So feeding them Arctic cod, they're feeding them a high fat, high quality food. Yeah, there's a great YouTube video of, that you took of um, a um, guillemot feeding a young chick, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, there's one of the things, and actually there, there is a uh, Friends of Cooper Brown YouTube uh, uh, page. Then it, it, I have a, a video taken with, with a motion-sensitive camera of a parent bringing in 
a fish that the uh, chick can barely get down its throat, uh, and, it, and it, it's also doing so around two hours after sunset, which, which again just shows that these birds are birds that are able to deal with the sun being below the horizon, because they have to, because for three months of the year the sun is below the horizon. And, um, yeah, uh, they will, guillemots will, chicks will eat up to their body weight in Arctic cod a day if they can, because they are going, undergoing a tenfold increase uh, in weight from their hatching weight to the weight when they leave the nest. So they have to have a very high quality um, uh, food supply close by. Okay, tell us about the polar bears of Cooper Island. Well, I mean, for 28 years, I'd only seen one real polar bear. I'd seen signs, I'd seen occasionally, but uh, one polar bear in 1979 was behind a nest box when I walked up to it, and luckily I started singing, because the bear raised its head as I started singing, and I was 20 feet away or so, and thought I was dead. Um, I ran, uh, which is something you aren't meant to do, but I, it was just a completely mid-brain response. I ran back to my camp and got the gun. The bear did not follow me, and it just went right back to sleep. Uh, that was the only bear I saw until 2002 when the ice pulled offshore and suddenly uh, a female with her two fully grown cubs were approaching our, 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 our tents on the island and very curious and sniffing and things like that. And again, I had no idea what to do with three polar bears approaching the tent. I learned how to back down polar bears. Uh, you can basically, uh, uh, if you look large, if you get two or three people next to you and you look like a large animal and you, and you hold your arms up, uh, it kind of confuses the bear and they walk away because you don't look like something that could be something they would eat. And what I always think of whenever I see bears is I realize there has only been one case of a polar bear uh, killing a human, uh, one recorded case, in northern Alaska. And uh, part of that is due to the fact that, um, that we don't have much to offer them. Bears want to eat fat. When they kill seals, they eat the blubber, but they don't eat much of the meat um, if, if, if there's other food around. When they find uh, beached whales, they eat the blubber because fat is something that is much easier to process out on the ice. You don't have to drink water to do so, and it obviously is a much better thing to eat for that environment. Um, we don't have typically enough fat for a polar bear to uh, really have any interest uh, in us. And, and, and to be honest, any bear that would take the time to kill a human being would typically be uh, disappointed in, in how much fat it would get. So, so bears are curious about humans, but they, they always back off if you let them know that you're a human, which I do by either making noise, if I yell, um, if I wave my arms, um, if I actually, if I get straight uh, upwind from them and they can smell me, uh, they will then yeah. run because they clearly react to human smell by thinking, gee, this is something we don't want to be near, probably because of past experiences with, with hunters on the ice who've had guns and things like that. Well, yes, we'll have to take a break and we'll be right back with George Avoki of Friends of Cooper Island. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together now. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with uh, George DeBokey. George, how can people learn more about your work? Where should they go? Well, the the uh, simplest thing to do is to go to the website Cooper Island. That's one word. dot org, um, and um, there are links there to our blog, which is at a, a site called Adventures in Climate Change. And um, if they want, they could just enter Adventures in Climate Change. There are a number of other uh, uh, blogs and areas of interest that are treated by the. Uh, by the Adventures in Climate Change site. And as you mentioned, there are some YouTube videos. If they get on YouTube, there's pictures of polar bears walking around my cabin and various things like that um, at the Friends of Cooper Island uh, page on, on, on YouTube. And they can also go to Facebook and find probably all, they can certainly find all the links that would take them to the places I just mentioned, and that's just Friends of Cooper Island on Facebook. So is the arrival of polar bears frequent enough that, you could start offering polar bear tours and for people. Well, you know, I mean, I it is one of the places now where uh, I could, and uh, I mean, there there are now. Uh, that's the good news and the bad news. Uh, is, is the bad news? Or the good news is that there's guaranteed polar bears. The bad news is that there's guaranteed polar bears. And um, um, well, the you know, are asking, bad news for the guillemots and good news for somebody else, maybe. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and 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 I um, I have I have thought about the fact that um, that that if people and actually Polar Bears International and other groups that I've talked to 
are interested in me keeping observations, going out there. And there is, an, I mean, and, and the island was recently declared uh, critical habitat, as were all the barrier islands, for polar bears, because people now realize that they're coming off the sea ice, which is the ice, which is a habitat they want to be on, and coming to the mainland, and the first thing they hit are barrier islands. Mm. So that, that means that industry activity and other activity on the islands uh, uh, now is under some more uh, jurisdiction because of the fact that, that, that polar bears are there. So, um, yeah, so polar bears in August have become part of the story, and, um, and we are in the process of, of hopefully getting some some uh, better, we're hoping to get a metal building out there, which will be a little bit more secure. Also, ones with uh, a, a building with uh, smaller windows. My current small cabin happens to have a rather large window, which, in theory, a bear could come through if it wanted to. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it is the very odd bear. It's the one in a thousand that would yes. even think about going after humans. And, uh, but if it did want to come through the window, it could. And I don't want to wake up and, and find out that one has. Well, let's not forget the Guillemots. Now, in New England, we have barrier beaches where piping plovers were an endangered bird nest, and we've managed to put up fencing to keep the predators away from the piping plovers. They actually can run in and out through the, the holes in the fence. Uh, is there any hope to uh, protect Guillemots from marauding bears? And, and the bears can survive without eating the Guillemot chicks, I would think. Yes, and actually, I mean, and that, that's a good point. It isn't like we're, we would be depriving polar bears from some critical thing because they are a 800 to 1,200-pound animal eating something that weighs maybe a pound and a half or so. Um, what, we've, uh, what I realized last year is that if I were to put out a nest site that a polar bear couldn't get into, and I have thought about this for a number of years, I didn't think there would be a good site, but I realized by taking these plastic cases that people use to move their uh, camera gear and other sensitive gear in, um, and, and also they're used by the military to a great extent, and drilling a small hole in one side um, and putting a little baffle in there so there's some place the birds can breed behind. It is a very nice dark cavity, which it is very hard to break into. Um, and um, we did that with uh, around six nests last year and had breeding success uh, from them that was similar to what we've had in the past. Uh, so, uh, and there, there is video certainly on the Facebook page and, and, and also on all the other pages that I mentioned, the web pages I mentioned, of, polar bear, of, of a polar bear trying to get into one of those cases and not being able to do so. So as a result, we have a, uh, there's a firm in Canada that makes these cases called, happens to be called Nanook, which is the, uh, the Eskimo name, Inupiat name for, um, um, for polar bears that we're taking out 150 of them and uh, modifying them, as I said, and replacing all of the current wooden nest sites that have been destroyed annually and that have to rebuild annually on the island. Uh, and we're putting them out so that the birds can breed successfully without having polar bears come in and kill and eat the young. They, they will still be vulnerable to all the problems with the prey being reduced and with puffin, uh, puffin uh, competition. But this, yeah, but it's not uh, the same as a polar bear wiping out a whole population, you know, Right. No. I mean, so so that uh, and and actually, we may well uh, try to do something so that we'll put up puffin nest sites that 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 they will find more attractive. Right. And and, and that they won't mess up uh, mess up the guillemots. Yeah, that's what they've had to do in Bermuda for the cahal bird. Um, it's so close to the size of the white-tailed tropic bird that they have to the long tails. They have to uh, have a hole that 
it's a keyhole shape, and the difference in the sternum shape of the two birds makes a difference of which gets in and which doesn't and stuff. Huh. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, and, and but, we haven't uh, played with that yet, but we, uh, but we realize we may, uh, we're cutting now around a three-and-a-half-inch uh, circular hole to let the guillemots in, but realize that we'll probably put on some sort of adapter um, that will do just what you say, that will, that will do something that will exclude the puffins. It will certainly leave enough sites for the puffins. Yeah. And one of the other things that we're doing, too, is I, I just last year, for the first time, I took an um, electric fence out. And I did that because polar bears, I, all of my power on the island, other than the propane I use for cooking, is solar and wind power. And polar bears, are, for some reason, are attracted to towers. And they always walk up to the wind tower and the battery bank at its base and the solar panels there and show too much interest in it. And that is critical for my uh, survival on the island. Um, yeah. So 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 last year I put a fence up and indeed did keep polar bears from going in there. What I'm going to be doing is putting in a lot of uh, guillemot nest boxes in that perimeter, so it's almost like a green zone for the guillemots. It'll be a, it'll be an area that will be protected because I can protect my life and property out there. I can't protect the the uh, the guillemots from the polar bears right. with this sort of fence. And uh, also putting them inside my own campsite perimeter, uh, where where I have a second large uh, large um, electric fence, so that uh, guillemots that choose those sites in the future will be ones that will be able to deal without polar bear uh, predation. That's great. Yeah. It, it's neat that you're working with these munition boxes, since that's what the guillemots found there in the 1950s, were these abandoned munition boxes. Well, no, that's I true. Yeah, I mean, in, a different uh, kind of box. Um, I know totally, but I'm wondering, you know, in in Barrow, I found that the Eskimos, or the local people, would um, fire off guns to scare the polar bear away. Mm-hmm. And since birds have no sense of smell, I wonder if you want to sprinkle some gunpowder on your containers or something to help the um, discourage the bear or something. Yeah, you know, that's true. You know, I mean, and I mean, I actually have, uh, when I, uh, I actually did at one point try to make up a scarecrow with, with my field clothes from the first part of the field season uh, <laughs> that I had, uh, thinking that, yes, if, if they come by and get a whiff of this, they will, they will probably run away from the cabin. It didn't, it didn't work. It didn't work. But. Yeah, I guess that's about as smelly as you could be, though. That's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the one benefit of not having a, a fresh water to bathe in. Yeah, um, that would be be fabulous if we could, you know, have bears coexisting with with uh, guillemots. Well, yeah, and actually, I mean, what's happening up there now is that there's going to be offshore drilling soon. There's going to be uh, increased tanker traffic. There's going to be commercial fishing soon, and there is the need for a seabird to monitor the marine environment. That's the main reason people study seabirds now is they're great monitors of the marine environment. And that's what I want to keep going up there. I want to have this guillemot colony keep being a monitor because it's been a monitor for the past 37 years. And if it can do it for the next 20 years, when, when major changes are taking place in the area, it's going to be uh, just a very, very uh, valuable resource. So are the people in Barrow seeing changes in the fish populations? Uh, yes. Yes, they have. Uh, typically in the past in their uh, nets that they would set close to shore, uh, they'd set them from the shoreline out to maybe uh, 30 or 40 feet from shore, um, they were catching whitefish, um, which is a uh, which is a fish that 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 goes up the uh, rivers to uh, to spawn, and it's a it is like most whitefish. It is a it is a bony fish. It isn't certainly it's a tasty fish, and people would bring by smoked whitefish for me. 
Uh, but it's nothing like salmon, and in the past, oh, seven years or so, uh, salmon have started to come up, and they started catching salmon in these nets that they were setting for whitefish. And, of course, when you go out and you find a salmon that's, you know, four or five times the size of a whitefish and certainly much tastier, it is a, it is a game changer. So now everyone is going out and trying to catch salmon, and there are lots of pink salmon um, and some reds coming up also. And a, a friend of mine, a native friend of mine who was on the island, set his net uh, on the south side of the island one night, and uh, we had fresh salmon the next day, and that was, uh, that was amazing. Wow. Um, they, they are not yet to the point where you can easily catch them on a rod and reel, which is how I'd have to catch them as a sport fisherman. Um, so, so that's going to take a bit more time, but uh, that will happen uh, at, at, at some point in the future uh, at, at the rate that they're moving up there. George, why do you think the salmon are increasing? You think it's the aquaculture, or oh no? Well, essentially, the salmon rivers, are not. Uh, even though one thinks of them as an Arctic species, they're really a subarctic species. I mean, I mean, as is clear from the fact that they're from California up to you know Bristol Bay, and and there there are not that many salmon streams. I mean, uh, salmon rivers because of how long the rivers were open up there, and also the Arctic uh, itself has uh, sea surface temperatures that are cooler than most of the areas that salmon typically occupy. So. As the ice has been retreating, the uh, solar radiation has been warming up the ocean. Um, salmon are now coming north, as are the invertebrates and other things that they feed on. And this is just the first wave of, the, of just like the puffins prospecting. These are the prospecting salmon coming up to see what's going on there. Um, they will at some point, I'm sure, start going up rivers that they haven't occupied in the past and start spawning in them. And to the extent that that's successful, you'll have uh, salmon populations up in the north slope where you um, haven't had them in the past. So I think this is a natural cycle or a human-caused perturbation of the ecosystem? Oh, well, I mean, it is, I mean, essentially all of the warming that has been seen uh, over the past 30, 40 years is best explained by the CO2 emissions that uh, humans are uh, are putting out so that so that to the extent that 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 there's anything that is caused by ice loss or warming temperatures in the Arctic, um, it is a, it is a human perturbation. So we're talking to George Tabaki about the impact of global warming to the Arctic. We'll be right back after this break. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with George DeVoke of and you can learn more about his work on Cooper's on Cooper Island uh, off the coast of Alaska, 25 miles east of Barrow, uh, by going to Cooper, what is it, cooperfriend.org? Uh, it's cooperisland.org, one word. Cooperisland.org, yeah. one island, one org. And uh, we were talking, um, well, we were talking about the polar bears and um, how they could coexist with the uh, Guillemots. And um, George, unfortunately, spends all his summers up in up there. And um, summer is a time for educators to think about how to regroup for the coming season. And it happens that uh, in June 29th is when the National Marine Educators Association is going to be having their annual conference in Boston. And um, we were looking for ideas of how to engage uh, students in uh, well, and you work up there, George, on Cooper Island, and tell us what you have for ideas. Well, one of the things that I realized, and, and I have I've become more and more convinced that, uh, that education of youth is a very important part of what, uh, of what sh- should be done in terms of climate change and environmental change in general, and that the Cooper Island story has a number of components that would engage uh, students. So... As we replace these nest sites with these with these plastic cases, I realized that if a school were to adopt one as such um, and say, "Yes, this is our nest site on the island," they would then have a feeling of rather than oh, there's some there's some people who are up in the Arctic uh, doing something on birds that they would have just like having a birdhouse in your backyard, a stake in what is going on with a seabird colony, and um, and and have even thought that it would be a very simple project for a shop class. Um, or even if, if a shop class doesn't exist in that school, just some parent that has some uh, tools to, uh, to have the school actually make the site, to actually uh, buy the plastic case, which is not that expensive at all, put a hole in the side, put the baffles in it, uh, and then send it up to Cooper Island so they would think, yes, we're sending this up to the Arctic. Uh, we could then take pictures of it uh, with the chicks in it and various things like that and uh, be able to uh, tell them and tell, tell the science teacher from that school what's going on every year so they could then track this through, through time. And we will be doing the Cooper Island study for the next few decades at least. And this could be a way in which the school could have a real connection with the Arctic. Nesting boxes for guillemots. 
yes, handmade yes. in your local community. Right. No, it's yeah, it's yeah, uh, low cost housing. And and now with these, you know, um, flip um, video cameras and things, it's almost possible to have, uh, you know, uh, a camera and, or somehow, you know, get images of what's going on inside the nest or something. Oh, yes. And actually, that is a major part. I mean, what we realize is that, is that once we do these boxes, it means we can do a number of things. Like, as you say, put, uh, we can put cameras in them. We have currently cameras uh, outside of them, the motion-sensitive cameras, and, and there is video uh, at, at, at the website and at the YouTube site from those. And then we could also do things uh, where you can actually have a scale. Uh, you can have it so that the, plat- so that the bottom of the site um, is, 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 is a platform on a scale, and as a parent comes back with a fish, you can see how much change takes place in that weight, so then you get an idea of, of what the... Oh, my gosh. So, and that's been done by other people who have uh, different types of nest sites, but, but certainly uh, having them breed in a, in, in a site we create has all sorts of possibilities, including having a monitor um, um, uh, at the entrance that would allow us to know when birds are uh, entering and exiting so we could see the frequency with which parents are feeding their young. Wow, this is amazing with all the technologies that we have available thanks to miniaturization and good batteries and stuff. Yeah, no, I know. No, it is. I mean, things are, I mean, and very, very soon Guillemots will be able, they will have transmitters that will be uh, small enough that we can put them on Guillemots satellite transmitters and we can answer once and for all where some of these Guillemots go. Certainly we know some of them stay off of Barrow, but some of them may go into the Bering Sea and... um, Within a few years, we'll be able to tell that, and it'll be very. Of course, when we do that, the, just the learning experience of having a bird be tracked on satellite and have that on the web um, immediately would be uh, would be very good for an educational component. Oh, absolutely! Be able to see maps, you know, of where things are happening. And, right, and, and yeah. that is one of the things too about uh, having this adopted nest site is that I know all the birds on the island because I've banded them, and some of them are certainly many of them are in their twenties. Uh, so I've been tracking them for at least twenty years as breeding adults. So a so that I could tell a school that yellow, orange, yellow, and blue, green, blue, which is how I identify them. There's three color bands on each bird that they were, that they are breeding in the nest site, and this is their history, and this is how they've done through the periods of climate change. So so there'd be this whole continuity of that. And then again, we we will put the transmitters on those birds, so so that some of those uh, we will have you know detailed information on their movements uh, as time goes on. Too cool. We got. Like, I got to ask you before we run out of time to explain how you ended up on the London stage. Oh well, um, it turned out that the uh, that, that the National Theatre uh, in London uh, wanted to do a climate change uh, play, so they brought in four young playwrights and said, uh, "Can you do something about climate change?" And one of them, by going to the web, uh, got taken with the Cooper Island story and the and the research I've done there. Um, wrote something up, and it wasn't until around six weeks ago that the actor who plays the character based on me uh, uh, emailed me and said, I'd like to talk with you because I really want to get into character and I want to know what it's like on the island, and could the person who plays you as a younger uh, you also be part of that conference call? turns out that because I'm on the island alone, typically they have a younger me and an older me or a character based on me talking about climate change on the island. So that opened on the 1st of February. Unfortunately, the reviews have not been great, except by people who are very concerned about the, the environment, who think it's great that it's being treated. Uh, people who are theater critics in London looking for, you know, the sort of entertainment and drama they would like aren't finding what they want. But, uh, but I'm going over there to take part of, in a post-show question and answer on the 28th of February. Uh, looking forward to it greatly uh, and hoping that some people will 
stay after the show um, and um, and have questions for me. Well, George, you're solo on this island. I mean, the dialogue isn't going to be King Lear and the summer of your discontent or something. Well, I know, and that's why I'm very interested, especially because there is, I mean, and I can see how they could do it. I mean, because certainly if the older, I mean, if, I mean, if the older me, if the current me were to talk yeah. to the, to the to the to the person who was out there in the 1970s and say this is what you're going to be seeing and and also just have the idealism and everything else that I had in the 70s it would have been an interesting conversation between somebody who knows the reality of what's happening in the Arctic and someone who thought that well gee if that happens things will change because people will take action and then realizing no they won't they will just essentially try to ignore what's going on oh dear. Well, the, the play is going to run for um, into April, and this play is called Greenland. And um, and when are you going to be out there to? Um, you're going to be talking after one of the performances. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be there on the on the 28th of February uh, for a for a post show conversation. And and also, I'm very much looking forward to meeting the person. To meeting the two people who play the character based based on me, and th- there is a thing. Uh, there's a, there's an article in um, on the Adventures in Climate Change blog, an interview with the playwright, and what he said is that this was the inspira- that like Cooper Island and I was the inspiration for the character, but it's not meant to be a biographical thing. But he he liked the idea that somebody who wasn't looking for climate change and was out on the edge of the mainstream and also the 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 geography of what was going on found this thing and was just kind of uh, very taken aback by the rapid changes uh, that I've seen. Yes, the review I read about, um, you know, su- suggested that it's, there are different vignettes in the, in the play, and your particular story was one of the most compelling parts of the play. Um, of course, it helps to have backup acting by polar bears. Well, yes, and and that is I don't want to give anything away, but it's an, it's it's in most of the reviews. Everyone says that this puppet animatronic polar bear that comes out at the very end is just a major uh, entry and 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 is almost a high point of the show. It is when the two characters are talking on the island. Someone who saw the play said that it nudges my foot. Someone else said that it eats a guillemot. I think they might be have been playing with that ending. Um, my fear was that it was going to end with a polar bear eating me, because that's obviously my fear when I'm out on the island, that that's how the study ends. Um, and uh, it would be a major climate change signal, uh, but it wouldn't be something that I'd really want to see happen. No, that would not be good, although it might help with ticket sales. Right, exactly. We're out of time. George DeVoke, thank you so much for talking with me on Moyer's Environmental Dialogue. Oh, great, Robert. Thanks, thanks much. It's been, it's been great fun. Please check out George's site at, at uh, cooperisland.org, or you can learn more at oceanriver.org. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.